Hello, Renew. My name is Lisa. I'm going to read the um, scripture for the sermon that Pastor Dave's going to preach on. Uh, from Numbers 22, 21 through 31. And you guys can be seated. <laughs> um, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the, on the hill. Azah and Ahio, sons, lots of hard names to read, Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and the Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel was celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, systems, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Azah reached up and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Azah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Azah, and to this day that place is called Perez Azah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, just thank you for this scripture. Thank you for this time for us to all be together and fellowship with one another, Lord. I just pray that you be with Dave um, as he speaks from your word and just open our hearts and our, um, our minds just to be open to how you want to speak to us today. In your name, amen. Amen. God is good all the time. God is good. All the time. All right, we're continuing in our series called Strange Stories in the Bible. Basically, taking passages that are difficult to read, hard to understand, controversial from our perspective, um, or just weird. And uh, it's been a fun series. I've had a good time. And... Uh, um, Today, as Lisa read, we're in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 11, and I've entitled today's sermon, Can't Touch This. Um, you can't touch this. It's a reference to, I forget what song it is. <laughs> but, uh, oh, okay. Um, but imagine the people of Israel are in a celebration, a parade, if you will. I, I remember when the Seahawks won uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, Isaiah and I actually went to downtown Seattle and uh, 
uh, went to the parade, the victory parade. It was so awesome because the streets were packed. Everyone was celebrating. Everyone was so happy. And in a town that's usually known for rain and sadness uh, for much of the year, people were celebrating and people were together in one kind of uh, collective joy. And this is what's going on here. It's almost like uh, it's a triumphal parade because David has just unified uh, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Remember, those kingdoms were split. So he uh, took over Jerusalem and has united the kingdom. And so in celebration, he decides, hey, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and return it to Jerusalem to its rightful place. So this is what's happening. They're, they are parading through and worshiping. It says that there's cast, lyres and castanets. I don't know if there's castanets, but... Um, oh yeah, there are castanets. Verse 5, castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, which I don't know what they are, and cymbals. So imagine just all of these instruments and people are like, bang, 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 and like horns, huh, huh. Um, going through the streets and celebrating with all of their might, all of their might, just worshiping the Lord. And then all of a sudden, the cart on which the Ark of the Covenant is resting on, the cart hits a bump, and the Ark shakes, right? It's a little unstable, and Uzzah reaches up just to steady it because he's afraid it's going to fall off the cart. He steadies it, and he drops dead. And everyone's like, party foul. It's like, way to bring the party down. Like, someone just dies, right? God just takes someone's life. And it says, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act before God struck him down. And he died there beside the ark. Right? Party foul. Way to end a celebration. Like, the mood drastically changes. And I think the reason why I chose this passage is because I feel just like David feel, felt uh, in verse 8. David was extremely angry because of the Lord's wrath that had broken out against Uzzah. And he was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How? Right? What are you doing, God? What is the meaning of this? Why would you do that? That's harsh. That's unfair. That's over the top. Right? The situation doesn't demand such an extreme response. And from our modern day sensibilities, right? We're like, that's not fair. That's cruel. That's unjust. Right? And it, it kind of plays to all of our fears of how the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful, angry God. The God of the Old Testament. That's why I love the New Testament because it's about Jesus and love and forgiving your neighbors and love your enemies and we're all happy and everyone is accepted and everyone belongs and God is gracious. All of those things which are true, which we pull from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it seems like God is petty. God is like... This tyrant, whenever he's displeased, he just, you know, exacts judgment on someone. And so David's feeling like, well, I'm not going to worship anymore. I'm not going to carry this ark because 
man, if you're going to do that kind of stuff, I don't want to be a part of that. Like, my hands are off. This is not fair. This is not right. And David is frustrated, as many of us feel as we read this passage. Who is God? What is the character of God? I thought God was a loving God. Right? How could he be so harsh? Right? This guy was just helping, literally lending out a helping hand. And he died for it. And even as we started this worship, God is good, all the time God is good, we're like, whoa, this makes us ask, really, is God good? If the scriptures are true about what God did and who God is right here, is God really good? Is that good? Right? If I, you know, punish someone or harshly killed someone just because they did something, right, wrong, that didn't fit my perfect view of how things should go, and they did something, and I said, no, right, no soup for you, and just went, you're out, right? You would think, man, what is wrong with Pastor Dave? Like, that's not the type of church I want to go to. So David is angry and afraid. And he ends up leaving the ark, taking a break, leaving the ark with Obed, where was the name Obed-Edom, the Gittite, um, for three months. Needless to say, uh, Obed-Edom hit the jackpot, right? He won the lottery, basically. For three months, the Lord blessed him and his entire household while he was holding the ark in his storage. He's like, oh, okay. Like his stock portfolio went up. Like all of his flocks multiplied. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm down with this. Um, meanwhile, Uzzah's family was like, what just happened? Right? Why did God take my life, his life? So I wanted to give a little context. What is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the history and the meaning of the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible? The Ark of the Covenant... Um, it's basically the most holy relic, relic, the most holy item for the people of Israel. And so if you remember in the Exodus when they're leaving Egypt and in the wilderness on the way to the uh, promised land, um, God gave instructions to Moses and the people to build the tabernacle, basically a, a movable temple because they were wandering. And the Ark of the Covenant was the main piece in that tabernacle. It was to be in the inner sanctum, right? The holy of holies. And later on, you'll see, you know, in the temple, the Solomon's temple, uh, the temple in uh, Jerusalem, that that temple kind of followed in the structure or the, the design of the original tabernacle, except it was, right, grounded. It was found on a foundation. But the tabernacle was movable, and God established a special... Uh, line, the line of the Levites, which was the priestly line, um, to take care of everything involved with the tabernacle. So no one could touch anything of the tabernacle. Only um, the Levites could pack it up. If they're on the move, they had to pack up all of the items, the, the ark, right, the lamps, lampstand, everything. Pack it up and move it. And the Levites were the holy priests, um, and only they were involved um, with the tabernacle. But the Ark of the Covenant was gold-plated. It was basically like a chest, 
right? If you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the, the hunt for the Ark of the Covenant. Because actually, we don't know where, uh, the Bible doesn't tell what ended up with the Ark, what, and the Ark, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Right? It, it uh, disappeared somewhere. So Raiders of the Lost Ark picked up on that and like, oh, we should make this into an archaeological find. But anyways, the Ark of the Covenant was gold-plated, and the lid of the chest was solid, pure gold, and that was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat were two wings of cherubs, cherubims, which were flying angelic creatures. These wing, their wingtips touched, right? Um, and inside, does everyone know what's inside the ark? Inside the ark were the two, the two tablets of the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And then the Christian, and the Christian uh, kind of, in our, um, from our story, um, also in the ark is Aaron's staff and a jar of manna. So the ark of the, the, the stone tablets um, symbolize law. Aaron's staff is the priestly line, right? Law, priestly line, and the jar of manna is God's provision for us. So those three items are in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and it was housed, um, basically it housed the glory of God, right? It sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later in the temple and it symbolized God's holiness. And if you remember God's glory and holiness, you remember like the third day song, show me your glory, uh, Exodus 33, where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God, show me your glory. I want to see you, right? That's right, the ultimate spiritual high, right? Like, I want to be the only person to ever gaze upon your glory and live, right? And God says, what does God say to Moses? You cannot gaze on my face, right? Because anyone who looks at my face will surely die. So instead, Moses, I'll walk past you and you can look at my rear end, right? So Moses catches a glimpse of God's rear end, because if he saw all of God, he would die. Um, so that could have been another strange passage that we went through. Um, but in this, we see the notion that the full extent of God's glory, right, cannot be held, cannot be beheld by any human, right? No one can look on the full glory of God, the full holiness of God, the full vision of God, because God's glory is so pure, so powerful, or whatever, that whatever were to gaze upon it, uh, if you were to gaze upon it, it would lead to immediate death, right? The one thing I can think about is the sun, the power of the sun, right? We're told at an early age, don't stare at the sun, right? It's dangerous. You could go blind. Of course, me being the boy that I was, was like, oh, don't stare at the sun? I'll stare at the sun and see what happens. And for like 10 minutes, I just saw those green things, right? Green lights, and I couldn't see for a long time. You can damage your eyes. But if you imagine if you actually had a spacecraft that could go to the sun 
And as you approach the sun and try to gaze upon it or even touch it, you would be incinerated immediately, right? And so it is with God's glory according to the scriptural testimony that God's glory would be like if we touched the sun. We would be incinerated, obliterated. Um, Some more context on the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year uh, on the holy day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the temple and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal on the cover of the Ark, on the mercy seat. And this action would atone for the sins of the whole nation. Um, So the priest who went into the temple during the time of Yom Kippur had to be fully right, fully right with God, or else that priest would be struck down dead. Today, Christians believe that Jesus, right? We believe Jesus is our high priest, basically, like the high priest who, who made atonement on behalf of the, all the people. Jesus is our high priest. We can't approach God on our own lest we be incinerated, right? But Jesus, who's our high priest, is able to cover us and make us pure and make atonement for us between us and God, and that's, that's how Jesus saves us, right? Um, so Jesus is our high priest. In Numbers, we have, uh, if you go to Numbers 151, whenever the tabernacle is on the move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it, and only the Levites. Anyone else who approaches it has to be put to death. That's in Numbers 151. In Numbers 4.4, he's talking about, he's setting apart among the Levites, the Kohathites, Kohathites. I just realized that Koh's name, a man we know, is Kohath, which that's Kohathites, so he's a special line of Levites. That's cool. Uh, Kohathites (laughs) at the tent of meeting. Um, Oh, Numbers 4.4, this is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the shielding curtain, and put it over the Ark of the Covenant. So they were to put material, cloth, to cover the Ark of the Covenant, along with other sacred things in the tabernacle, because if anyone else gazed on it, Um, they would die. So they're protecting people from seeing the pure sacredness and holiness uh, of these items. So the Kohathites would take down the shield and curtain, put it over the Ark of the Covenant law, and they are to cover the curtain with a durable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. And so the poles that they're putting in place are poles that they put four people put on their shoulders, right, to carry the ark. And uh, in other places, it talks about um, how the Kohathites are not to touch. They can only carry the ark by uh, holding the poles. They're not to touch the ark itself or else they will die. Um, So there's all of these rules or there's all of these kind of rituals and boundaries, if you will, 
I like the word boundaries because I think like in creation, at creation, in Genesis, God establishes boundaries, right? Night and day, right? Uh, sun and moon, um, land and water. And that's the way he creates it. And even to Adam and Eve, he says, you can have any of the fruit of this garden, except don't eat of the fruit in the center of the garden. Don't eat the fruit of the knowledge of evil and death. Or what? You will surely die. Now the grace of God is that even though God said you will surely die, does Adam and Eve die because they eat of the fruit? No, that's a part of God's graciousness, right? But the command, the boundary is don't eat it or you'll die. And this, this doesn't change. There's something about God's boundaries and God's uh, holiness and sacredness, the things that are holy and sacred um, about his presence and his presence before the people and the temple and the holy of holies, that there's boundaries, there's rules, there's instructions, right? Very detailed instructions on how things are to be built, things are, uh, are to be handled. And we don't really understand it today because, I don't know, we're all about freedom, right? We're all about, hey, spontaneity. We're all about, yeah, rules are good, but they're not the law. And we are in the, the new covenant. We exist in the new covenant where Jesus' love and grace wins the day, right? And so we're taught to look at the law and say, oh, that's, you know, kind of, that's kind of pre-Christian. That's kind of, you know, more immature. That's like uh, uh, prehistoric, pre-Christian. But as Jesus said, God's law was never abolished, right? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We don't follow, we don't read Numbers and Leviticus and follow all the rules, right? Right? If, if we did, we'd actually go to Leviticus and see that, you know, we should wear masks if we're unclean and be separated from the community, right? No one points to that scripture, right? But we don't, like, go to Leviticus. <laughs> we don't go to Leviticus and say, oh, I must do this, do this, do this, because we're living in another, another iteration, right? But if God made it so that there are boundaries and God said, no one can gaze on my holiness or touch my holiness without dying, then wouldn't it make sense that that's how it is, right? Like if God says it, that's how it is. So for our story, if you go back from 2 Samuel 6 to 1 Samuel 4, if you remember, the Philistines actually defeat Israel in battle. Um, they defeat him in battle, and the Israelites, Israelites are like, oh, we got beat up. We need payback. Maybe let's go get the Ark of the Covenant because we're used to the Ark of the Covenant going before the people as we march in the wilderness, going before. It always went before the people as they marched into battle, into war. And so let's take the Ark of the Covenant, right? And the, and the reason why the people of Israel are getting beat by people like the Philistines is because they had been in 
in the lands and God was like, be set apart, don't worship other gods, don't get involved in their, their religions, but they were kind of taking on, right? They're being synchronistic and taking on other religious religions of the people that they were living among and building uh, other idols and worshiping other idols. So God was kind of like perturbed with them, but they're like, okay, let's go back to God. Let's get the ark. We'll take it with us in the battle against the Philistines. The Philistines see the ark and they're afraid. They're like, this is the God, right? The God goes before them. God that led them out of Egypt, right? The God that led them out of Egypt, the the Egyptians were plagued, right? All these bad things happened when they opposed the Hebrews. So the Philistines are afraid. But when the Israelites attack, the Philistines still kick their butt, even with our magic trophy, right? Our magic good luck charm, the ark. We had the ark. We still lost. We still lost. And then the Philistines are like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Let's take this ark, like the ultimate like embarrassment. It's like after a college football rivalry game, right, where you take their bell or whatever, like you go to the Wazoo Cougars or what is it? And take their cougar, whatever they have. <laughs> it's like, but they don't have it. They like keep having to replace it because UW keeps beating them. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't think they have. Is it cougars? No. <laughs> okay. Um, so they take, their, they take their cherished, holy Ark of the Covenant. And if you read 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, and 7, it's the story of the Ark going from town to town among the Philistines because it enters Ashdod to the Temple of Dagon, and right, bad things happen. Everyone starts to get tumors. So they're like, send this on down to Gath. And Gath, same thing, plagues, right? A, a lot like Egypt. Same thing, tumors. People are dying. So they send it on um, to Ekron, a third town. And, and same thing happens. So finally the people are like, we need to send this back to Israel. Let's Go send it to this border town called Beth Shemes. Let's send this thing back down. And what we're going to do is put it on a brand new cart and get brand new oxen, ox, adult uh, cattle that have calves that have just given birth to calves but have never been under the yoke. And my thinking behind this is, and we're going to put tie up the calves. Because what they want to do is put it on the cart with these oxen who have never been yoked. And they say if it goes down the path towards Beth Shehem, um, Shemes, then this God is real. Right? Meaning like the, the oxen just found their way back to where it was supposed to go. And the test is they've never been yoked so they don't know what to do with a cart. And two, they have their, their baby calves right there. Like, why would a mother oxen want to leave her baby calf, right? But still, this cart goes towards Beth Shemesh. And the people see the ark coming, and they're like, they celebrate, and they worship, and they get a large flat rock, and they put the ark on it, and everyone worships and praises God and celebrates because the ark of the covenant is back. But then... 
Later on, it's mentioned that 70 of them are killed. And you know why they're killed? Because 70 of the men tried to look what was inside the ark. <laughs> and so it's like, that would probably be me. Like, what's inside this thing? Like, let's take a look. Are the commandments really in there? Um, so 70 of them killed. So Beth Shemesh, the people at Beth Shemesh are like, oh my gosh, we don't want this either. We cannot wield it. Uh, 1 Samuel 6.20, and the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And if you remember uh, the week that I spoke about the rich young ruler and the eye, go, it's harder for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through an eye of a needle, right? What, were, what did the disciples say? Right? When Jesus said, it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. They said, then who can be saved? Right? Exasperation. The people are exasperated. David said this too. Then how can I carry this ark? If you're going to act like this God, if these are the consequences, I don't want to do it. Who can be saved? Who can wield it? Who can carry this ark? Well, according to scripture, right? The Levites, the priests, the holy priests of Israel, and following certain rules and regulations. So, um, 1 Samuel 7, 1, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years and all. 20 years and all. Right? And that's, that's where David picks up the ark from, right? After 20 years of it just being in this house, because no one wants to touch it. Can't touch this, right? So what is the takeaway? What's the takeaway? I love 2 Samuel chapter 6 because if you read on, this it becomes the passage, like David's angry, right? He leaves it with this guy. That household is blessed. But then finally, David's like, okay, he sees that this household is blessed and says, okay, God is with the ark. God is, God's presence is with us. I should continue to take the ark to Jerusalem. And that's where we get the famous passage of David dancing, right? They, again, they make this processional. David gets in his boxers and is dancing in front of the ark. The ark stops every six, whatever, six paces, and they, they do a sacrifice. Can you imagine how many miles did they go, but every six paces they have to stop and make a sacrifice? It's like... Oh, this is so rigid. But at the same time, David dancing and the people worshiping before the Lord is, right, the ultimate image of freedom and worship, right? Celebrate. I, there's songs, right? I will dance as David danced. When the Spirit of the Lord moves upon my heart, I will dance like David. Dun, 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 dun. 
<laughs> right? Dance like David. Like come, sing praises, yell out, freedom, freedom. Raise your hands in the air and shout. And I have to admit that, right, I'm really into authenticity. Like when I was in college, we went on a mission, urban mission trip, and we would visit these churches like, uh, like a Latino church or a black church. And so we went to a church that was charismatic, right? And people were calling, the pastor was calling people up to do, and they were being slain in the spirit. He would like, do you need to be prayed for? He would like smash their heads, foreheads, right? And they'd fall down. And so he called our group up. And the pastor was like pushing my head, pushing my head. And I was like, I don't feel anything. So I pushed back with my forehead. I was just like, no, I will not fall down. And someone was like, my, my classmate was like, that's culturally insensitive. I'm like, what? <laughs> right? If it ain't real, I ain't going to do it. And I'd, I'd be the kind of guy that sat in our large group worship times and people would be raising their hands and I just didn't understand it. I'd be like, that's so fake. They're just doing that. Like, they're doing it like, right? They weren't raising their hands except for the place where it's like, I stand, I stand in all of you. Then everyone's like, ah! Right? And I'm like, why don't you bow to your knees when it says, I get on my knees. Right? Like, when people get on their knees, it's like, come on. <laughs> come on. That's so fake. Until I realized that when you, when I began to really understand worship, right, and revering the holiness of God and who God was and taking that into my heart, yeah, my body would want to do things. And even when I didn't feel or experience that deeply, if I did raise my arms, even if I wasn't feeling it, sometimes the act of raising your arms changes your heart. And so this is a lesson in worship, right? At Renew, we like to talk about uh, how we're trying to create a safe and holy place, both a safe and holy place for people to be, to grow, to worship, to be loved. As a community, we want to reflect the character and love of God who is safe and holy. And by safe, we mean you can come as you are, right? Without fear of condemnation, without fear of rejection, without fear of judgment or alienation. In Jesus, we are all loved and forgiven and we belong, amen? amen. That's a safe place. In the same breath, we know that God is holy. That the ground we stand on is holy ground. The reality is that no one can stand innocent before God's holiness. No one. None are sinless. No one is perfect. No one can save themselves. No one can touch the holiness and glory of God by our own merit. 
just because we're good. But we need a high priest. Yes. And in the new covenant, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Amen. He is our atonement and our salvation. He covers us and carries us before the glorious throne of God to be embraced blameless. In the church, we often talk about unconditional love of God, right? God is love after all. But I think we make the mistake of thinking God is only love. God is also justice. God is also ultimate judgment. God is also the holiest of holies. So holy, no person can gaze fully on his glory without dying. The consequences of seeing and touching God's full glory is death. God is sacred. There are boundaries that God has established. We, God is God, we are not. Eat of any fruit in this garden, but the fruit of God's knowledge and perfection, you must not eat. In our freedom, let's not forget to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And I'm not talking about a unhealthy fear of an abuser, right? Or someone who's cruel. But the fear of that which is so much greater and sacred than ourselves. The fear of someone that holds um, our life in our hands. Amen? We say God is love. And in our culture, this means, I feel like, oftentimes, ultimate niceness. <laughs> right? God is nice. He's always kind. He always works out good for good people. He always accepts and brings comfort and joy. He will be here for me no matter what. And God is the God of the U.S. of A. And we will always win. <laughs> but also, God is holy. We must revere God. We must honor God. We must come before him aware and a little embarrassed by our depravity. God is God. We want God to be who we project God to be. We want God to be who we want God to be. We want him to be nice, never do harsh things. We don't understand and always accept uh, that, he, uh, that he always accepts everyone and all of us no matter what we are doing. But if God says that if you gaze directly at my holiness, you will die, then that's how it is. We die. <laughs> he is the ultimate determiner of all things. To honor holiness is to reorient ourselves. We don't make God into our image of what we want to God to be, to appease whatever whims we have. But we are made with God's DNA. We are made in God's image, in us. 
And if there's something that needs to be adjusted, transformed, cauterized, purified, amputated, made right, renewed, then by God, that's what needs to happen and will happen when we submit to the holiness of God. Amen? Uh, so in our, at our house on a porch, we have a sign um, that says, it's, in, uh, it's got, you know, Hawaiian flowers and stuff, and it says, please take off your slippers, right? We used to get, uh, you know, instead of, please take off your shoes before entering, please take off your slippers. Um, but growing up, being a part of a Korean household, we used to get in trouble for wearing our shoes in the house, right? It's like, Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. Asian households, most Asian households, you take off your shoes. Nowadays, a lot of people do that. But I thought that was like, you have to take off your shoes, right, when you enter in a household. And until I went to my friends' houses, who were not Asian, who were not Korean, and I would be, uh, I'd be invited in, and I'd start to take off my shoes, and they'd be like, what are you doing? We just walk in with our shoes. And I was like, oh. <laughs> You walk in with your shoes. Oh my gosh, mind blown. And I started to get used to it. Hey, yeah, I don't have to take off my shoes. That takes too much time. And then you have to put them back on. Just walk on the carpet with my shoes. Yes. It was like such a new experience, right? I've tasted of the fruit and I can't go back. Ah. <laughs> uh, and if you remember Exodus 3, the call of Moses, right? God says, the burning bush, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place you are standing on is holy ground. He continued, I am God, the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. When Moses heard that, he turned his face away for he is afraid to look at God, right? Moses' calling has to do with God reaffirming his identity as God's people, right? Moses is confused. He's been away for a long time. I am the God of your ancestors, of Abraham, of Jacob. Remember this. And you know what? Take off your shoes because the place you're standing on is in holy ground. So now that my parents live here and when I visit them in their apartment, sometimes I just walk in with my shoes and my mom's like, ah, da, da, da. <laughs> right? And I'm remembering. I'm remembering how I grew up or what it means to be Korean American. I'm remembering that identity. And we too, as followers of God, remember that our God is holy, that our God is the God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, and the ground we stand on in his temple, right? Whether it's the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, or this church, as we worship, come before God, it's holy ground. We come in fear and trembling and reverence. But at the same time, you know, child psychologists talk about all the time, right? It's important to establish boundaries with, their, with your kids because actually they feel safer when you 
put boundaries around them. Because if you were just like, anything goes, hey, go throw them in the, you know, throw them in the fire, if you will. They, they're afraid, right? The world is too big. They don't feel safe, right? But they actually, they don't feel putting boundaries doesn't like inhibit them. It actually makes them feel safer and able to then play, right? When you feel safe, you play in the same way. We need to understand the boundaries within God, what, that God has placed us, that God is holy, that God is sacred, that God is the one true God, the only God that we are in the image of God and God is not in the image of us, once we understand that and understand who God is, those boundaries, they're not boundaries and rules meant to chain us, right? Or restrict us. They're actually, the holiness of God actually makes us feel safer because he's so big, right? We can do anything in his playground. I mean, we can play in his playground and be safe. And so that's why David is dancing after that whole process. He's like, yes, I remember. Yes, this is the holiness of God. Yes, we are the people of Israel and we're returning back to God. Let's worship and dance. Right? And his boxers. Don't dance in your boxers in here. That's contextual, right? Okay. <laughs> I guess you could. I don't know. What? Let's think about that theologically. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. <laughs> thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are both safe and holy. And that um, in your temple we come with reverence and fear. Um, and worship in your holiness. We don't deserve to stand in your presence. Except that Jesus stands for us. Between us over us and so thank you for that that we have a high priest that allows us to come to before your presence to worship and at the same time let us be free free to dance free to shout your praises free to give you glory because of who you are in jesus name amen